Welcome to the December 2013 episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Ailey Dalgan. This month, why doctors should consider race when prescribing anti-blood clotting medications. If people care about tailoring treatments based on people's genes, that is pharmacogenetics and personalized medicine, this is one of the variables they should be paying attention to. A new strategy for treating organ fibrosis. It was really encouraging that this molecule might um, be able to reduce fibrosis in the clinical setting. Plus, a new way to quantify tissue volume in the brain and why common gene variants induce hypertension and kidney disease. But first, let's share a moment for shared lab facilities. Community-style incubators in which large numbers of entrepreneurs and their startups all rent office space and mingle under the same roof have been a staple of the tech industry for years. Now, the same idea has started to gain traction in the biotech industry as well. This past autumn, a handful of shared lab facilities opened up across the United States, each providing affordable lab and office space in a vibrant entrepreneurial environment. In a news feature in the December issue of Nature Medicine, I wrote about this growing trend of biotech co-working, and I even visited one of the largest of these new turnkey labs for hire, one in the Kendall Square area of Cambridge, Massachusetts, called Lab Central. Johannes Fruhoff is the lab's president and co-founder. Lab Central is a shared uh, laboratory that we built uh, and just recently opened a few weeks ago uh, for startup life science companies. And why would such a startup company want to come here? So one is uh, that we are in a really great location in Kendall Square, which is where a lot of the excitement is happening right now in in Boston, uh, Cambridge. But also is that uh, if you're a small company like that, uh, you may not have enough capital to build your own laboratory. And especially in, in our industry where you need equipment and you need hoods and you need pipettes and robots and things like that, this can easily run into the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of equipment that companies need in order to get started. And so by coming here, they won't need to invest in this type of equipment because we have it available for them and they, and it's a shared resource here. You're providing affordable lab space, flexible time frames. That's great on the science side of things. Are there other aspects of Lab Central that make this place special, you think? Yeah, I, I think there are. Um, on the face of it, people come to us because of space. Um, very quickly, they realize that there are many more benefits to being here than just the space or the nice instruments that we have. So one of the things, menu items that we have is a seminar series where we offer a formal training in things that range from reading legal agreements, for example, confidentiality agreements or licensing agreements, to things like how to talk with the FDA or how to talk with the big pharma partner that you may want to sell your company to. What is more important and what we are creating by having such events is community and, and opportunities for people, for the many entrepreneurs that we have in here, to meet each other and to get together and exchange ideas. I personally believe that this may be the single most valuable contribution that we make to the success of these companies. The value of being around other entrepreneurial scientists, I think, is really enormous. Johannes Bruhoff. 
Now, Lab Center opened for business on November 1st, the same day as it happened as Harlem Biospace, another shared lab facility located in New York City. Sam Sia is a bioengineer at Columbia University in New York and the founder of Harlem Biospace. So Harlem Biospace started when we were looking for a space ourselves to uh, house our startup company. We were looking around for space. We couldn't really find uh, a lab space that was uh, both affordable and close to our academic campus. And so I started having discussions with uh, New York City in terms of the programs uh, they were working on for building incubator spaces for biotech companies. And a year later, we have, uh, we have this biotech incubator uh, opened up. And after searching high and low in New York, which is notoriously difficult to get affordable property, you ended up finding something not too far from your own academic labs? Yeah, and so I think that's what's really uh, interesting and exciting about what we're doing is, uh, you know, when one looks at building a biotech wet lab space, it's usually seen as pretty expensive. Uh, the construction costs are usually way high that are being quoted, like $500, $600 a square foot. And so to even get started, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, uh, to build a lab. And so the question is, how can we build a beautiful, well-equipped lab um, that uh, that is also affordable? And we're proving that you can do it. Uh, and you can do it in the most expensive real estate property in the country, which is uh, in, in Manhattan. Tell me about Harlem Biospace. How big is it? What does it look like? What makes it special as far as incubators go? Harlem Biospace is, uh, it houses 24 scientists. And really, it, the way we think about the model is we really draw our inspiration from the tech community and some of those tech uh co-working spaces, uh, but we have these additional components that are appropriate for biotech. So we have wet lab benches, and also we provide uh, equipment as well to the companies. So you basically move in on day one, and you can actually do experiments right away. We provide uh, some other business services as well, such as uh, legal support and ongoing classes and mentorship. So all of that together, I think, uh, hopefully will create uh, an energy and a buzz inside the space that is similar to the tech world, uh, but is really specifically geared towards biotech entrepreneurs. You can read my feature story on shared lab spaces in the December issue of Nature Medicine. Always greener on one side of the fence. 
In recent years, a number of genetic studies have linked common variants in the Promoner region of a gene called UMOD, UMOD, to an individual's risk of developing hypertension or chronic kidney disease. The question was, why? The UMOD gene is known to encode a protein found in urine called uromodulin, but the mechanistic link to disease was unclear. Now researchers in Italy and Switzerland have teased apart what's going on. So the risk variants, the variants associated with increased risk for hypertension and CKD, lead to an increased expression of the gene. That's Luca Rampoldi from the San Raffaele Scientific Institute. Together with his colleague Olivier de Vust at the University of Zurich, Rampoldi created mouse models containing the UMA gene variants associated with the disease. And these animals showed increased blood pressure, which was developing very early in the life of the mouse. The mice also had lesions on their kidneys similar to those seen in elderly human patients. The researchers further examined the disease phenotype in these mice. And through the analysis of the phenotype, we established that this was a salt-sensitive hypertension, which could be modulated and actually reversed, lowering salt in the diet. This increased salt sensitivity, it turned out, was due to the overexpression of a protein called NKCC2, a type of sodium transporter in the kidney that gets activated by uromodulin. To see whether this mechanism was the same in humans as well, Rampoldi and his colleagues used a drug called furosemide, which is known to inhibit NKCC2. They gave the drug to people with hypertension who had two copies of the UMOD risk variant. And consistently with the hypothesis, individuals carrying risk variants for uromodulin, hence producing more uromodulin, had a significant drop in blood pressure, whereas it was not the same for individuals carrying protective variants of the gene. So this was the final uh, experiment demonstrating that the mechanism that we identified as playing a role in the set of hypertension in the mouse model was actually playing a role also in human hypertension. Furosemide is commonly used to treat the fluid buildup and swelling caused by congestive heart failure. It's a pretty powerful diuretic and probably wouldn't be safe for the long-term types of chronic therapy needed to control hypertension. Nonetheless, the results of this study raise the possibility that other similar types of agents could hold therapeutic promise. Again, here's Luca Rampoldi. Our findings here set this stage for new experiments looking at the potential role of uromodulin as a target for new therapies for uh, controlling blood pressure, either targeting directly uromodulin or any of the molecules that are uh, activated in the pathway that is downstream of uh, uromodulin overexpression and increased salt intake. Luca Rampoldi's study can be found in the December issue of Nature Medicine. Still to come, how racial differences could affect the efficacy of blood thinners, This is the age of personalized medicine. But first, a new approach to fighting fibrosis. Fibrotic diseases of the liver, lung, kidney, and other organs are a common feature of chronic tissue injury. By some estimates, the excessive tissue scarring wrought by fibrosis is even a contributing factor for as many as 45% of all deaths in the industrialized world. And yet, there are no approved antifibrotic drugs currently on the market in the U.S. and few approved drug options elsewhere in the world. So there was some excitement this month when researchers published a paper in Nature Medicine describing a druggable core pathway that contributes to fibrosis in several organs. 
A key component of this molecular pathway is something called the alpha-V integrins. These are protein receptors found in the scar-forming myofibroblast that help activate a growth factor called TGF-beta. For years, researchers have known that TGF-beta is a central mediator of fibrosis, but it also has many other roles in the body, including in immune regulation and tumor suppression. So targeting TGF-beta across the board often brings with it a host of unwanted side effects. By comparison, says study author Neil Henderson from the University of Edinburgh, targeting alpha-V integrins might let you diminish TGF-beta activity only at the sites of fibrosis. If we could look at ways of inhibiting the effects of TGF-beta in the context of organ scarring and fibrosis via inhibition of alpha-V integrins, then it would be a more um, specific approach to reducing the activity of TGF-beta With that in mind, you and your colleagues developed this platform for genetically manipulating the myofibroblasts, the the cells that are responsible for the tissue scarring, and then you use that to actually manipulate alpha-V integrins. Um, What did you find? Um, For a long time, what we've really required, particularly in the field of um, basic science liver fibrosis research, is the ability as you allude to, to um, manipulate or delete specific genes within these scar-forming myofibroblasts in the liver. And so we induced fibrosis in these mouse models um, in mice that had the alpha the integrin deleted on uh, stellate cells specifically compared to mice that had not. And there was really a profound reduction in fibrosis in the mice without alpha V integrin specifically only on the hepatic stellate cells. And then when we broadened this study into the kidney and the lung, looking at equivalent cell types in those two organs, it was also protective when we deleted alpha-V integrin from the myofibroblasts in those organs, suggesting that this was a basic common mechanism driving wound healing and fibrosis in uh, multiple solid organs. That's a genetic deletion, but you also were able to target the alpha-V integrins with a drug. Yeah, so um, this all came about from a a very uh, fruitful collaboration with uh, some chemists at St. Louis University, um, and they approached us to ask whether we would be interested in uh, looking to use their small molecule inhibitor um, in our fibrosis models. Um, They'd been working on small molecule inhibitors of alpha-V integrin for quite some time, so we were delighted to hook up with them and, and collaborate on this. So we initially again ran the model uh, in the mouse model of liver fibrosis and we saw a, a very dramatic reduction in fibrosis both giving this uh, new small molecule from the outset of injuring the liver um, and then we also used the small molecule halfway through the fibrosis protocol really to try and and look at whether this would be potentially useful in the real world of treating uh, human patients with uh, with this molecule. Um, and we extended uh, these studies by looking in a model of lung fibrosis in mice and again gave the small molecule halfway through the, the uh, pulmonary fibrosis induction protocol and it was also protected. So it was really encouraging that this molecule might um, be able to reduce fibrosis in the clinical setting as well. Now, this specific small molecule that you've used in this study, I'm guessing this is more of a a lab tool that you can use in mice, but is the next step then to find something that might be safe and effective uh, for human use? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we've ongoing working, and certainly uh, the team at St. Louis have been pushing forward on this in terms of looking carefully at the toxicology with this molecule. Um, the, needless to say, uh, they've also started to develop um, variants of this small molecule looking for whether there's increased um, efficacy in fibrosis models, although Compound 12 is in, in the mouse models has been uh, highly efficacious, but absolutely um, there needs to be careful uh, translational work moving this molecule towards the clinic, um, but it certainly is, is exciting and, and I hope, you know, initial trials with this molecule go well. Neil Henderson. Moving from the lungs and the liver to the brain, we have a study this month in Nature Medicine on a new MRI-based technique to measure the volume of tissue within each cubic millimeter of the brain. This method could help doctors in tracking the progression of neurological diseases like multiple sclerosis. As study author Aviv Mezer, a biophysicist at Stanford University, explains, existing scans can give you a qualitative snapshot of what's going wrong in the brain, but they don't give you any sort of quantitative measurement. We might see the white matter to be brighter than the gray matter, and the cerebral fluid to be really dark. By having such an image, a doctor or a radiologist or anyone else can look into those images and, see, and say, okay, those vertical are normal, the white matter look normal, and so on. So that's just qualitative observation of things look like they should, and there is no big holes or something strange in their brain. But now we'd want something where we could say not just is something wrong, but how wrong is it, and, and maybe if you take two scans, has it gotten worse or better? Right, so just think that you would go to a doctor and you would say, and, and with, with a kid, and he would say, this kid is tall, or this kid is short, or it seems that he has a high temperature, but it won't have any units. It's not uh, something which is not useful, but it's very limited. So in your research, you're trying to put units on these measurements, and not just any units, but units of volume. Why focus on volume? When we see MR, MR signal uh, at the brain, there is different source of the, of the different intensity between tissue, let's say between white matter and gray matter. The very first effect in the signal is the amount of water or the volume of water in each location. So that's the first thing we would like to measure and just for, was very hard to measure. Another reason is that in many diseases, what we know that is changing is the volume. So that's a very, very basic measure that we would like to have. But what we don't have is a way to, to assess how those things change in time or how much water is there right now and, and how that's different from the normal control. Now, without going too deep into the physics, this is a biology podcast after all, can you describe the methodology that you and your team have devised? So the, the methodology is actually is just a simple uh, clinical sequence. So uh, most of our work was to find a way to calibrate the magnet so the images will have meaning. And you did that on kind of a dummy brain to start? So we did it in, in, in three different levels. We first did, did it on a, something we call dummy brain, or we, we call it phantom. We just put a ball filled with liquid and try to, and we know that it's homogeneous, and we want to get it back to be homogeneous. So if we scan it without any correction, it looks pretty, it's changing in space, but we actually know that it's not. So the first thing you want to do is to be able to get it back to be homogeneous. Then what we did is we create mixtures 
of lipids with different constants, so lipid versus water, we, we knew the difference in volume in each tube, and we tried to recover that with the magnet. And the last step was actually to do it in a magnet and using different hardware, so mean different scanner or different coils, and still get the, and, and be able to re- reliably get the same measurement on the same brain on the same subject. I imagine there was a lot of trial and error, but you eventually got it to work, and then you actually used real patients, um, people with multiple sclerosis. Yes. So multiple sclerosis is, uh, I would say, obvious target to try to, to help in, in, in assess their, their, their condition. So in, in multiple sclerosis, myelin is affected, and, and for that reason, there is, a, there is a gain of water, if you want, and loss of tissue in a specific location in the brain. So the idea was to go and measure those patients and compare them to, to normal controls and see if we can recover those lesions. And of course, we could. I would say that if you, you would say that to a radiologist, you, say, you would say that it's okay, we've already been able to see those lesions. So if you just look on the qualitative image, you would see those lesions yourself we, without all these quantitative techniques. The important thing is that now we can also assess how bad the situation is how things are changing in time. And you could do that, I suppose, with someone who's actually undergoing a therapy, either you know, for clinical purposes or in an experimental setting to say, is that drug working? Okay, so that's the, very, that's the ultimate goal of, uh, of such a method. You can think now of a drug therapy in which a group of subjects will get a specific uh, drug that may be supposed to uh, help in remyelinization and we will go and, and check how this, if it actually happened and what is the course of this change. Those kind of ideas are, are, are interesting ideas which are still not in use currently in drug therapy or in drug testing. Aviv Mezer. Hiring committees take notice. Aviv Mezer is wrapping up his postdoc at Stanford and hoping to find an academic position from which to continue working on the techniques presented in Nature Medicine. Yeah, I I'm really want to keep doing that, and I hope to find my way to one of the universities, either in, in the U.S. or in Israel, in the near future. We end this month now with a story about genetics, all spelled out in black and white. Epidemiologists have known for some time that heart disease is about twice as common among African Americans as it is among Americans of European descent, and that blacks have worse survival outcomes than whites. The reasons for this racial disparity are complex and include socioeconomic status and various environmental factors. However, even when these things are taken into consideration, something is missing. Some yet-to-be-identified factor must be accounting for the racial differences in heart disease. And according to Paul Bray, director of the hematology division at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, one of those factors is innate platelet biology as he found out by conducting a study published this month in Nature Medicine. We recruited 154 subjects, 70 blacks, 84 whites. And importantly, what we did that's, I think, different and makes this a really robust data set is that we have physiology data. A lot of people will do genomics, transcriptomics, look at long and short RNA profiles, but we are able to correlate that with physiology. And in doing that, we quite unexpectedly found this racial difference in the physiology to one of the thrombin receptors on platelets. 
specifically this PAR4 receptor? Right. There are two thrombin receptors, PAR1 and PAR4. They stand for protease activated receptor 1 and 4. And a thrombin activates both of them, and they have somewhat different signaling properties. Uh, and we found no racial differences through PAR1 or through any of the other receptors that are known to activate platelets. But there was a pretty strong racial difference with PAR4 in that platelets from black subjects reacted more potently, more strongly, faster than platelets from white subjects. And then what would that suggest in terms of if these people were taking anti-clotting factors? Well, I think, first of all, it would at least suggest a potential mechanism whereby blacks could have worse outcomes or more frequent events than whites, number one. And in terms of anti-clotting agents, we really don't know yet, but there is a drug that has been studied in nearly 30,000 patients but is not yet FDA approved that blocks PAR1. It's called Vorapaxar. Now, if you block PAR1 with this drug, the only way thrombin has left to activate platelets is through PAR4. So, if a black subject took this drug, they we don't really know. They might have less bleeding or they might have worse outcomes. We simply don't know. So what are the implications? We need to be paying attention to race when we do these drug trials. So amongst those 30,000 patients that were treated with Vorapaxar, about only 2.5% were black. So there's really generally not a big enough recruitment of blacks into these clinical studies to know whether they need different dosing or whether they're going to have more harm or more benefit than whites. When you say blacks and whites or African Americans and and people of European ancestry, how did you measure that? So uh, the way the study was designed, we used self identified race and ethnicity to call someone African-American or European-American. But once we got this unexpected result, we realized we probably ought to drill down on this a little bit more. So we did genome-wide genotyping and used uh, genetic markers to demonstrate that we really had two groups based on genotypes, and that the two groups uh, matched perfectly self-identified race. But now, aren't we getting sort of dangerously close to uh, some of the controversies that emerged around BIDL, where we had race-based drugs? This is the age of personalized medicine. If I told you that based on your, some characteristic I knew about you, you are more likely to bleed into your brain or not get a heart attack. You know, and you, you were one of, one of the two. <laughs> you only had one of those two options. You know, you might want to know that. So if people care about tailoring treatments based on people's genes, 
that is pharmacogenetics and personalized medicine, this is one of the variables I should be paying attention to. Paul Bray. His study can be found in the December issue of Nature Medicine. Well, that's it for this episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast, but there's plenty more to be found in that latest issue of the journal. There you can read more about everything you heard about on the show, as well as find our annual end-of-the-year news special. All that and more at nature.com slash naturemedicine. If you're not already a subscriber to the podcast, be sure to sign up on the iTunes store. And if you are a regular listener, why not let us know what you think? You can email medicine at us.nature.com or leave us a review in iTunes. You can think of your review as a sort of holiday gift, giving back to the Nature Medicine podcast. Until next time and next year, I'm Ailey Dolgan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>